0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, 2 bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of the show, plus the chance to vote each week on upcoming topics, while full membership gets all that, plus members-only bonus content. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about various strategies, some institutional and some organizational, for the Left to take back power and steer the country back towards small-D democracy. Clips today come from We the People with Nina Turner, The Majority Report, Represent.Us, The Bradcast, A Report from WNYC, Chapo Trap House, and The Dig.
1: It is absolutely rigged and that we do need leaders in either one of these party structures, but we need leaders who are willing to, to give of themselves and call out the system and say that I stand here before you to, to reveal that the system is imperfect. It is rigged, but that I, as a servant, the, the first among equals, I'm going to try to make some crooked path straight. And that's what your candidacy did, Kimberly Ellis. I mean, you shook, you shook the foundation. And some people have just thrown up their hands and they've said, really the hell with the Democratic party. Cause we have the corporations have two parties and the people have none. But what we were able to do in California is something special. This didn't happen overnight. We had to convince people who were not within the, the, the structure of the Democratic party here in California to run in their precincts so that they can have a voice inside so 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 what do you say to both sides for to people who want to continue to work within the democratic party but then there are also some people out there who's who say the hell with the democratic
2: party yeah i say we need them both we need people uh forcing change within the party and people forcing change outside of the party we won 68 percent of the elected delegate vote that cannot be denied
1: that's amazing.
2: And so I would remind folks um, of something that we as African Americans and, and certainly as black women know very well, and that is oftentimes, um, even though we win, victory is not always granted on that first time. Oftentimes we have to win uh, straight out, win two or three or four times before we actually get to um, realize that win. And so I just want to remind people as we are coming up on the anniversary of that historic uh, campaign and day that we did not lose, that we won in so many ways and to continue fighting inside and outside uh, for the change that we know is possible because we are on the cusp. And that is something that um, no one can take away for, from us. Um, what they want most is for us to give up and go away. And so what we must continue doing is showing up because showing up is half the battle and continue fighting.
1: In my conversation with Jim Hightower, the former agricultural commissioner in the great state of Texas. We talked about democracy and the Democratic Party and why it is so important for people to be politically engaged and that it really is the movement of the grassroots that shakes the grass tops that gets us the changes that we need. And so Jim Hightower gave us a lot of advice about how to be politically involved and that if we don't like what is happening, we should run. I can hear the commissioner saying it now that we are not just here to resist the government. We are here to become the government. What does resistance mean
3: to you? Mm-hmm. Well, it does mean standing up uh, to the powers that be and their deliberate efforts to knock down the powers that ought to be. Uh, and that that's, it, that, that is a a different dynamic than the Democratic Party has been practicing over the last 20, 30 years or so, uh, which is sort of an accommodation with power. You have to confront power. Often, you know, throughout my politicking period, I've seen people, you know, both, both sides will come out and say, well, we're far consumers, you know we want to help farmers we're far labor you know but you can't just be far them you've got to be willing to be against the powers that are running roughshod over them yes. <laughs> and that's the big difference uh, here uh, and that's what resistance is is focusing on the the actual leverages of power that are being used money political process uh, social Justice issues, you know, et cetera, and going right head on at them because everything else is can be and usually is BS. Uh, so just we're go. not talking about Bernie Sanders. No, no, no. We're talking about <laughs> bovine excrement, as we say out in the Panhandle of Texas. Uh, so, uh, uh, but uh, so so that's that, that really is is it because the only real politics in America. Uh, from the very start, uh, the the from Declaration of Independence forward has been over money and power. Uh That too few people control too much of the money and power, and they use that control to get more for the, for themselves at our expense. And that's what's been happening. Inequality doesn't happen; it's caused.
1: If you had to. Give a few words To encourage folks Especially folks Who are the work of day people That you talk about all the time Who might not have A lot of Who feel as though They don't have Any extra time In right. their lives Because When you're in survival mode Yeah right. That's all you're doing You're just trying to survive Day by day And you might not Feel as though You have the opportunity to volunteer or to become a member of an organization say our revolution mm-hmm. or to read the high tower lowdown which mm-hmm. i recommend reading i'm a subscriber too there let me put up, that Lord. out there okay. but what what would you say to encourage people to really get involved and resist what the question is get involved and and what what are they asked to, to resist
3: uh, well, the uh, the powers uh, of the of the elites to direct your life. Uh, some people say, "Well, I I'm, politics is messy. I don't want to do politics." Well, then that that means you don't care about housing. You don't care about your food. You don't care about you know your, your kids being able to get a decent education. You don't care about the basics of life. Of course, you do. All of that is what politics comes down to. And so, find some comfort level. Uh, some, some issue that does particularly gall you and, and you want to do something about and spend just a little bit of time understanding it better so you can just talk about it, uh, to, to your neighbors, to your family, to, you know, in line at the supermarket or, you know, wherever. Just say, do you know this? was going on? You know, and you just have, that begins. The political process, just to have a discussion about, uh, and somebody bringing other people's attention to what's going on, and they already know about it, they feel it, but they may not be thinking about it. So, you just build connections, uh, and then do a little bit, you know, volunteer an hour a week, something. Uh, it can even be done from home, but it's better to do it together, and to recognize that you're you're in with a whole group there's a little hardware store near my home in austin uh it's a, you can borrow a tool there they'll help design whatever you're trying to do and their slogan is uh, together we can do it yourself <laughs> and, and that's i love that yeah, and that's what you have to think of you know we, we can't do it ourselves, but together you, you you can make a lot happen uh and just people in your own block people in your church group people in a workplace uh break room or you know just a few people can can make a big difference uh, and it, it's surprising uh, you know uh, it, it used to be people don't send letters to congress anymore they send emails uh, and they're, they're not very effective really but it used to be a rule of thumb in in the congress that 10 letters opens a file you know that office says oh so we got 10 letters here <laughs> you know we got to do something we to right. have a position on this so, so just a little bit of uh, a pushing produces results mm-hmm.
1: What can I say about the one and only amazing Susan Sarandon? She is a force of nature. And in our conversation, we really reflected on the fact that we do understand that people are really feeling heavy right now. Some people are even feeling depressed. We talked a lot about what we need politicians to do and what, you know, what we can do to help But also understanding that people need to be reminded that they really are the hope for the change in this future. That collectively we can change the dynamics of the situation in our community, in our city, in our state, in our nation, and even our world. And that political activism is so vitally important. And you don't have to have a fancy title to get involved. You can volunteer at your local school you can volunteer at your homeless shelter you can go to a city council meeting or a town hall meeting you can volunteer on a campaign for a candidate or for an issue but whatever you do you have to get involved It gives you the opportunity to not only use that energy that you have, you also get a chance to meet amazing people and people who inspire you. And it really is that inspiration that will take us to the next level. Susan also talked about political activism is like rescuing souls. Your craft, I mean, you're skilled, you're an actress, that is what you do for a living, but you also care about the living, what we're living in every day in real life. And so many people of your profession don't necessarily get involved in that way. Why well, do you do that? You don't need, I mean, well, why do you do it?
4: First of all, I don't, I don't know how I'd live with myself if I didn't, because at a certain point, even before I was media attached, uh, I just came of age in D.C. also um, when I went to college at a time when the issues were very clear and you couldn't be young and not try to fix what was going on in the South, fix what was going on in Vietnam, you know, it, it just was part of being young and then carrying that, continuing to carry that, you meet the most hopeful, amazing people. So in a world which could be incredibly depressing... As things are unfolding in what seems like an inhumane uh, cruel uh, regime right now and and all throughout you know even e- even before, all along, when you see the environment going and when you see uh, social injustice, economic injustice, no matter who's in charge underneath that is a layer of people who just person by person are making a huge difference or saving life by life, unsung heroes, people that you never hear about that are rescuing souls one way or another, that are changing laws, that are changing situations, that are building houses, that are, you know, putting their lives on the line. So really, it's self preservation. Because if you didn't, if I wasn't involved in grassroots movements, I think I would you know really have a hard time surviving so when people say to me oh my god i'm so depressed i can't what are we going to do i said, that you're depressed because you're not doing anything you're depressed because you're not around people teachers nurses i mean the nurses are just the most extraordinary and how about these kick-ass teachers recently who've just taken on state by state what was their due these fabulous teachers you know So every time, if you look, the news is not, especially mainstream media, is not going to be serving this up to you. You know, most newspapers are not going to serve this up to you, but that's why all these kids that are finding their information online were so far ahead of the curve, because they were not hearing the same empty kind of shiny objects are over here and don't look really at what's going on over there. They know what's happening, and And that gives me hope. You know, anyone who starts knocking the millennials doesn't know the millennials.
1: Yeah, they don't get it.
5: The next solution I find really intriguing because it combines uh, a couple of different things, but it essentially, and I'm trying to find the, the quote that I know is in here where you say, um, oh, here it is. Instead of trying to bridge the divide in our country, the Democrats should now widen it. And you suggest that the primary uh, mechanism to do so uh, would be to make it. Uh, compulsory to vote in states like California and New York in particular, but all of the uh, you know the so called i guess blue states the states that that um, uh... The, 17
6: states the, the one for clinton at least
5: and 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 it's i mean most conceivable obviously in states where Democrats control uh the yes. the, the the state houses and certainly in California and New York can do that just between New York and California, if there was compulsory voting. You would see a uh, rather than a three point uh, three million uh, vote gap. Probably, I don't know, double that.
6: Uh, well, maybe I didn't. More. I didn't count it up for. Um, and I have to say, I had help with the math here, Sam. I'm <laughs> I, embarrassed to tell you. You don't. Uh, if, if, we're if, a complete
5: uh, math-free zone on this show. If, so. if you had,
6: um, well, well, I'm supposed to do some counting as a lawyer, so <sighs> I, I'm a little embarrassed that I needed help. But if. Uh, if California alone had some compulsory voting, and I'm talking about a system that is like the system that exists in like 25 different countries of the world—Belgium, Australia, uh, others—it's um, it's not unusual, um, although it's not the majority way that uh, uh, democracies across the world vote. But let's assume that that um, the same percentage uh, the, by which Clinton uh, won with a relatively low turnout. California uh, were extended if everybody voted. Uh, she would have won by uh, close to 6 million votes just mm. from that one state. Uh, she would have beaten uh, Trump by, it would have added about uh, I think the exact number, let me check the article, it's 3.2 million right. to her national margin over Trump from one state. If you add in New York, if you add in the other especially in the large population Clinton states. Um, That uh, would have become a disparity that is too big to ignore. Blow up the disparity, that's point one. Point two is that, that even having one or two or three states Go to compulsory voting would set off a kind of chain reaction. First of all, we'd be a house divided. We'd have these Clinton states which have these huge voter turnouts, including in midterms, which I think is right. absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial, since the midterm is really the device by which the Republicans control the country. Uh, <clears throat> you would have these huge disparities in the Clinton states or the blue states or some of the blue states and the red states, which are going in the opposite direction. They're putting in laws that try to restrict people from voting. So it creates a dynamic where you have a whopping popular imbalances between the blues and the reds, and you have truly started to create a constitutionally house divided in Lincoln's sense. And one or other of those republics, many republics, republics within our broader republic is going to prevail. It's not going to be that the country splits apart in this secession. One form will take out the other. I really, truly believe that if you had this kind of compulsory voting system, you know, like Australia and Belgium and a couple of European countries, or even got the voting rate up from fifty-seven percent to eighty uh, percent, especially in midterms. And eighty percent is kind of the norm in countries like Denmark and others. And we could you do. And I should just say, have...
5: we could. We could do. We could do. There's many different ways of doing this. The vote by mail. I mean, there's a whole uh, myriad of different ways of doing that. The the practicality of it is uh... is not so much of an issue, but if, if, I,
6: Sam, that's where I disagree. I, I, I don't think vote by mail or anything else is going to make a damn bit of difference. It's really the problem. is no, not I'm saying that people if can't we were to do that. Th- it's that they, they aren't engaged in it. And and unless you, you make it a moral obligation as well as a political and legal obligation for people to participate mm. in the republic, our side, the Democratic side, my party, is not going to be able to resist all the forces that are making the country more unequal, more unfair, more in despair, you have to to correct all these minority rule mechanisms. These are minority rule mechanisms that are set up assuming that the have-nots are going to vote. That's what the founders assumed. Unless you bring in more of those have-nots, those minority rule defenses are too strong uh, to allow the Democratic Party, which is supposed to represent that side of the country, from putting its agenda into effect, the only way to correct the Constitution constitutionally is to expand the number of people who are voting, and that is what we have to do um, uh, it 's not necessary it's it's not the sufficient condition expanding it isn't enough. There are other things that have to be done. But if we don't expand it, all those other things won't matter. You know, changing our pitch, you know, talking about the industrialization more, being more like Bernie or being less like Bernie. None of that is going to matter unless you bring more people into the process. And they won't come in because... I don't know, there's some sort of atrophy of uh, the spirit and uh, uh, they aren't going to come in unless we actually make it a moral obligation or, or a legal obligation to come in as it once was a moral obligation for people to come in. They People in this country did vote at very, very, very high rates at one point because democracy was a cause. They felt committed to it. We were the only democracy in the world. We had to show that we were behind this thing. Now, there's just this passivity, which isn't going to change until you begin making it clear to people that they have a duty to do this. It's not just a right. It's a duty. It's an obligation. And and our liberal reluctance, oh, well, we can't tell people what to do, et cetera, et cetera, and just leave them alone on their iPhones. No, 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 no. We have to tell them, you have to do this.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Amy Arrett founded the company in 2013, naming it after her daughter, with a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. As is so often the case, the status quo options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but without the huge time commitment. Beautiful multi dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door on your schedule for under $25. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use the promo code LEFT. And now for the Midterms Minute, a look at the candidates and races in battleground districts that you need to know about, shout about, and support to make the biggest impact possible in the election on November 6th. This is it, folks. As of the release date of this episode, we are exactly two weeks out from Election Day. If you've been slacking on donating or volunteering, there is absolutely no time to lose. Information on all of the battleground races and how to get involved can be found at the Midterms Minute HQ at bestofleft.com slash midterms.
7: We continue today with our focus on toss-up battleground races for the House that we haven't covered yet. Specifically, we're talking about states with more than one of these races. As a reminder, Democrats must flip 24 Republican seats to take the House. Let's dive in.
0: North Carolina has two toss-up battleground races. The state's 9th district is an open-seat race because, in a rare occurrence, the incumbent lost his primary. Now, Democratic businessman and veteran Dan McCready is challenging Republican Pastor Mark Harris, who led the fight against gay marriage in the state. Trump won the district by 11 points, and the Republican primary was fought over who loved and supported Trump the most. However, McCready appears to have a slight lead in the polls, even though a Democrat hasn't held the seat in 56 years.
7: In North Carolina's 13th district, Democrat and lawyer Kathy Manning is challenging Republican incumbent Ted Budd, who is adamantly anti-abortion and anti-gay marriage. Though Budd has already served a term in Congress, he's still calling himself a political outsider, while Manning has never held political office. Manning has made standing up to the insurance industry a pinnacle of her campaign and says she will not vote for Nancy Pelosi as House Leader, but she is slightly behind in the polls.
0: Now, moving on to Texas, which has two toss-up battleground races. In Texas' 7th District, which includes Houston, Democratic attorney and reproductive rights activist Lizzie Pannell Fletcher is challenging Republican incumbent John Culberson. Culberson is best known for co-sponsoring birther legislation, as well as denying climate change and opposing abortion and gay marriage. Culperson serves on the House Appropriations Committee and chairs the Subcommittee on Commerce, Justice, Science, and Related Agencies. If it's concerning to you that a climate-denying oil and gas politician who didn't mention climate change or zoning laws once after Hurricane Harvey flooded Houston is sitting on these committees— That concern would be justified. Fletcher has pointed out that warnings about Houston's flood risk came as long ago as 1996, but politicians ignored them. Clinton won this district by one percentage point, and the race is neck and neck.
7: In Texas's 32nd district, Democratic civil rights attorney Colin Allred is challenging Republican incumbent Pete Sessions, former chairman of the National Republican Congressional Committee. Although Sessions won his last re-election by 26 points, Clinton won this district. The fact that N. Citizens United has heavily invested in targeting Sessions with negative ads might tell you a bit about who he is. Sessions, of course, is trying to link All Red with Nancy Pelosi, who is once again being used as the embodiment of scary liberalism. The candidates are within a point of each other in the latest New York Times poll.
0: Virginia also has two toss-up battlegrounds. In Virginia's second district, Democratic businesswoman and Navy veteran Elaine Luria is challenging Republican incumbent and former Navy SEAL Scott Taylor. Taylor won in 2016 by 23 points. However, Trump only took the district by three points. The latest polls have Taylor leading Luria in this district that includes the world's largest Navy base and one of the highest concentrations of veterans. Taylor, who wants more military spending but hates taxes and Obamacare, is a member of the House Appropriations Committee, so it'd be nice to see him go.
7: In Virginia's 7th District, Democratic former CIA Operations Officer Abigail Spanberger is challenging Republican incumbent David Bratt, who won this seat in 2014 by beating then-House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. This district has been held by Republicans since 1971. The district's counties were split in the presidential election, but both voted Democratic in the 2017 governor's race. As Bratt has been calling Spamberger Nancy Pelosi every chance he gets instead of using her real name, a video of her forceful response to his idiocy during a recent debate has gone viral. She was inspired to run after Brat voted for an Obamacare repeal measure that passed the House and has called out Bratt for avoiding town halls with constituents.
0: As a reminder, voter purging is happening across the country, so we urge you to confirm your voter registration ASAP. Visit headcount.org and click Verify Your Registration Status under the Voting Info tab. There, you can quickly be directed to your state's specific website to confirm your voter registration. If there's a problem, contact 866 hourvote vote to report the problem and get guidance. Links to all the information you heard today, as well as additional resources, are linked in the show notes. And today's Midterms Minute, along with all of our election information, can be found at bestofleftcom slash midterms. So if making the blue wave a reality in November is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting Democrats and battleground races across the country via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too.
8: Here's the thing I never want to have to do again. Vote for the lesser of two evils. But every time an election rolls around, we end up with the same two choices, over and over and over again. Instead of positive, issue-focused campaigns that encourage us to vote for the person we like the most, we get mudslinging, outrageous lies, fear-mongering, and campaigns that make half the country hate the other. How is it that in a country with so many different people and ideas, we keep getting stuck with the same two options. It's no accident. The way we vote only ever gives you two choices who have any real chance of winning. It's literally built into the system. On the surface, the American system makes a lot of sense. Every citizen gets one vote and the candidate with the most votes wins. But it also creates a huge flaw called the spoiler effect. Here's how it works. Let's take the entire electorate and boil it down to 100 voters. And let's put everyone in order of their political preferences. The most conservative on the right, the most progressive on the left, everyone else falls somewhere in between. Now, when we've got just two candidates to choose from, the folks on the right vote for the Republican, those on the left vote Democrat, and the 5 to 10 percent in the middle who might vote either way end up tipping the election. But what happens when you introduce a third party candidate? If that candidate is progressive, the progressive vote is split between two good candidates and the conservative wins. If they're conservative, their vote is split and the progressive wins. Voters get that by voting for that third party candidate, they make it more likely that their least favorite candidate is going to win. So rather than voting for the candidate they like best, most voters choose the lesser of two evils. In this system, the winning candidate almost always wins with support from less than half of the votes. They don't even have a majority of support, yet they win and represent the whole electorate. And this is how we pick the most powerful human on the planet? Come on. Repeat this pattern over and over, and you can quickly see how we get a race to the bottom. Here's the good news. There's a small tweak we could make that lets you vote for whichever candidate you want without having to worry about the spoiler effect. It's called ranked choice voting, and here's how it works. Instead of choosing just one candidate, you rank candidates in order of preference. If your first choice is mathematically eliminated, your vote automatically goes to your backup. Let's look at how this would work using the example of the 2016 presidential election. (sighs) Say you're a conservative who wants to vote for Gary Johnson. In our current system, you probably felt pressure to vote for Trump because you didn't want to split the conservative vote and elect Hillary. But with ranked choice voting, you just put Johnson first and Trump is your backup. If Johnson doesn't win, your vote is automatically transferred to Trump. Or say you're a progressive who loves Jill Stein. Instead of being forced to use your one and only vote on Hillary, you could put Stein first and Hillary is your backup. You get it. The beauty of ranked choice voting is that it lets you vote for the candidates who most closely align with your values and gives America a much clearer picture of what the electorate really wants. No more settling for the lesser of two evils. You can vote your conscience without hurting your own interests. So now you're probably thinking, that sounds amazing, but that's never going to happen in the US. But here's the twist, it already has. RCV is already in use in cities across America, and Maine just changed their statewide elections to RCV. We're bringing conservatives and progressives together to pass more laws just like this, state by state, so we can fix America's corrupt political system from the bottom up. These laws are based on model legislation called the American Anti-Corruption Act. They fix our broken elections, stop political bribery, and end secret money. Go to www.represent.us to join us.
9: So if you don't know what ranked choice voting is and what all of this is about, the New York Times explained it actually in about the best and simplest language that I've heard for how ranked choice voting actually works or is supposed to work. They noted this will be Maine's first election using ranked choice voting, which voters approved in 2016 under this system, also known as instant runoff voting. Voters rank the candidates in order of preference. If no candidate receives a majority of the first place votes, the last place candidates votes are then redistributed to his or her voters next choices. And then they count again until someone and, and see if someone gets a majority, breaks 50 percent at that point. If they don't, then they take out the whoever came in last in that count and redistribute their votes until they get one candidate with 50%. Uh, As they noted on their election results page, uh, AP was only going to call winners for the first round of tabulation under this system. If additional rounds were required to determine a winner, final results would not be available for a few days, because that's how confusing this is and how long it takes to oversee and count and so on and so forth. Now, I know that many listeners... And progressives out there, a lot of also third-party folks, libertarians, Green Party—they like RCV, and I am sympathetic to the reason that they are sympathetic to it. Uh, for one, it helps to eliminate that spoiler effect. Uh, for one, uh, you know this—the fear of voting for a third-party candidate because it'll result in someone like Paul LePage uh, winning the election, uh, which has now happened twice in Maine. Many would like to see ranked choice voting so that they could, for example, vote for a Jill Stein for president or Ralph Nader in a third party. But um, but they would mark the Democrat or the Republican as their second choice under ranked choice voting. Right now, many people are afraid to vote for third party because they think it'll throw the election to someone they really, really hate. But if you speak to voters and candidates where Ranked choice voting has been used in the past. Many of them are wildly confused about how it actually works or doesn't. I have spoken with candidates who have run for office under the system who have no idea how they actually lost their race. There are cases where candidates that did not even win a plurality of the first choice end up winning office. I think I saw one case where someone who came in last in the first count or something like that or near last ended up winning the race. It's very confusing. And, you know, it also, by the way, requires uh, central tabulation computers. It can't be tallied at the precinct. You have to use, you have to get all the ballots together in one place to figure this out. And it's almost impossible for the public to oversee because the computers have to figure out all of the numbers.
8: And if you cannot watch a computer tallying a ballot inside the computer, you can't really oversee it. You
9: you can't oversee. You can't
8: tell if you the can't. computer counted it correctly. And
9: that's the problem that we have with the way we do it in most places. Currently, you can't see it. The public fights to make sure that the computer's counted it correctly. And now you're going to add all of this crazy algebra? That's nuts. You know, like I say, always, if we can't add 1 plus 1 plus 1 now to the point where we have one disputed election after another, just wait until ranked choice voting catches on as many progressives would like to see. Of course, those are many of the same folks, the very same folks, by the way, who also wanted touchscreen voting systems after the 2000 presidential election. So, you know, what some want for short-term political gain or reform may not be all that well thought out. So I'm just throwing that warning here. And now I I am nothing if not willing to compromise on things. Help everyone get along. So to that end, I always recommend that folks look at the alternative called approval voting, which is much simpler. People can just vote yes or no for as many candidates as they like. The one with the most yes votes win. Simple.
4: And that's Eas- called, again, approval, approval voting. voting.
9: You can look it up at Wikipedia, but it's it's simple. You just basically you just vote for as many people as you like. Whoever gets the most votes win. It's easy to count. It's easy to oversee doesn't require computers, it could be hand counted, it doesn't require crazy math, it allows you to vote for your third party choice and anybody else you like without the risk of the spoiler effect and so forth. So anyway, I'm not advocating for approval voting, but I'm offering it out there as an acceptable Workable compromise to those who are pushing for rank choice voting or instant runoff voting. And yes, I'm still furious and disappointed that I am being forced to agree with Paul LePage <laughs> on this, just that very narrow point.
0: We're getting down to crunch time in this election season, and what happens in the next two weeks will determine the direction of the country for the next two years and far, far beyond. If we flip just 23 districts in the House, Democrats will take back the majority, and many strong progressives will sit as the heads of many powerful congressional committees. If you want to put a check on Trump and the Republican Congress, this is the nuts and bolts of how to do it. As we know by now, elections aren't won with TV ad buys and hope. They're won with grassroots volunteer power. And Swing Left is helping organize volunteers to win as many of this year's swing elections as possible. When you join at swingleft.org slash left, you'll be immediately connected with other volunteers in your area who are working to win the race in a nearby swing district. You'll find out where and how you can make the most impact on flipping the house starting right now. To take a stand means you must do more than vote this year. We need to get fired up, get off the couch, and volunteer. Join Swing Left to find your nearest swing district and take action now. Sign up now at swingleft.org slash left.
5: That knock on the door this time of year? volunteers canvassing for their candidates in this fall's midterm elections. But this year, you might also get some knocks on your phone. WNYC's Fumiko Lip explains.
10: Aaron Schein is a hard working Ph.D. student. He's 29 and into machine learning at the computer science department at Columbia University. But since Donald Trump was elected president, a huge part of his life is politics.
11: These midterm elections are probably the most important election of my lifetime.
10: Four to five hours every day, Aaron reads the news, tweets his opinions, and posts analysis. And he texts his friends using a new app designed to get them to vote.
11: So you open it up, and they're focused on the midterms right now, so it's giving you this countdown of of exactly when the midterms are.
10: Outvote was created by two engineers in Boston who launched it last September. It provides a lot of information about the people in your contact list.
11: They use your contacts, and they see the name, and they see the phone number of the person in your contact. They cross-reference that to voter files. And if they can match it to someone in the voter files, they can say whether this person is registered, what district they're registered in.
10: There's other software that connects organizers with voters by text message. The key difference with Outvote is that the text comes from someone you know instead of someone you don't. And even then... Aaron's friends were still suspicious.
11: A bunch of them were like, is this you? Is this spam? (laughs) And then I would have to say, no, it's me.
10: (laughs) If they're registered Democrat, a blue capital D appears next to their name. If they rarely vote, there's a sleeping emoji.
11: I think there's the potential for a lot of social pressure here, because you would know exactly who your friends
10: is registered or not registered. One catch. This app is only for Democrats and other progressives. So far, it won't tell you which of your friends are Republicans. But Aaron says it's had a partisan snowball effect. Now his friends are downloading the app and contacting their friends, like a fellow student named Naz.
11: I sent her this text. She goes, I'm Canadian. And I said, you can still use it to nudge your American friends. We need you to vote. We need you, Naz. She goes, laughing my ass. Okay, you're connected. And then later she downloaded it.
10: Aaron believes in technology, but he says he'll also be out knocking on doors because there's no substitute for shoe leather too. Fumiko Lip, WNYC News.
0: Just a quick addition to the report that just played. Uh, and to be clear, this isn't a paid endorsement. I-, I just like the app and I'm happy to support it. Outvote got in touch with me and gave a few more details. In addition to what you just heard, they recently released a new feature that will now tell you which of your friends live in swing districts so that you can make sure they know how important their vote is this year. Plus, to give you a sense of the effectiveness of the app, uh, an internal study based on the 2018 Nevada primaries showed it was 35 times more more effective than door knocking again the app is called outvote so download it hassle your friends and encourage them to do the same to their own network
12: electoral reform and you talk about changing the way changing the winner-take-all form of elections could you explain that
13: sure yeah so we run 435 separate elections to the house of representatives in this country and they're all decided on on plurality winners, right? So you can win those elections with forty percent of the vote. Um, there's two problems with this. One is it leads to it leads to two partyism, right? Like this one of the few findings that a lot of political science people agree on is that the you know this system leads to fewer major political parties. Sixty uh, percent of Americans say that they want a third or fourth choice when they go to vote, um, and our, our our electoral system really mitigates against that. Okay, So that's one problem. Um, the other problem is that like in 2012. Democrats won more votes for the house uh, and yet did not win the house of representatives. And people estimate that we need to win the house vote nationally by like either between seven or 11 points in November to actually take back control. And that's because of things like gerrymandering. That's, that's, you know, Democrats like and Republicans living apart, you know, Democrats clustering together in cities. Like I don't have a single Republican friend in Chicago. Like, you know, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know where to find one, you know, like everyone I know is a leftist, you know, uh, but that's a problem for drawing district lines, right? Um, so there's a reform out there um, pushed by a group called FairVote um, that would, instead of having a single member district, you know, you'd have three or five member district, and, and those people would be elected according to rank choice voting. So that you could, you know, you could vote your heart with your first choice, like vote for the Working Families Party, vote for the Green Party, whoever. Um, and if that person doesn't win, your vote is then redistributed right? instead of mm. throwing it away. Um, your, your second choice candidate gets your vote. Um, so it would avoid, you know, what's happening in California right now where Democrats have, might screw themselves by running too many candidates in this top two primary system. This is where, this is another case where ranked choice voting would really help. Um, it would eliminate, you couldn't gerrymander, you can't gerrymander this map. Okay, um, so gerrymandering would be gone. Like politicians don't pick their own voters anymore. And it's it, it's a form of proportional representation, right? On the idea that like, You know the percentage of votes that a political party gets should in some way, shape, or form translate roughly into the percentage of seats that they get. And that's like not what we have in American democracy right now. And again, the way that we vote for the House, not in the Constitution, it's like you could fix it with a simple law, act of Congress, not with the president, and then it's gone, and the whole system is transformed. Um, And I think Americans would really like the system that comes out of that. I think we'd have four or five parties in Congress, um, and people would no longer feel like they have to vote for a party that doesn't really represent what they believe. Um, which is, I think another thing that contributes to, to the decline of, of the system. People are are checked out of it.
12: Yeah. I mean, um, it, it it, it also contributes to, I mean, this gets to the, the, the last thing, which is about voter suppression, but also voter turnout, like what you're describing also deeply demoralizes people from the electoral process.
13: Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, there's a really in, like, inspirational effort going on in a lot of states right now to restore the rights of ex-felons who are deprived of the right to vote in many states, um, to get people automatically registered to vote, um, to, to get rid of some of these voter ID laws. Um, but I, I think something a lot of people don't realize is that there's a, there's a clause in the U.S. Constitution that gives Congress the right to do whatever they want to the state procedures uh, for federal elections. So all of these things are, are something that could be wiped away with a single piece of national legislation. Uh, I call it the Modern Voting Rights Act. Uh, it could outlaw voter ID laws that are clearly designed to suppress the, the minority vote. Um, it could create automatic voter registration so that you don't have to navigate this like complex bureaucracy to get registered to vote. You just are registered to vote. Uh, it would create a, a holiday for federal elections so that people wouldn't have to make the choice. You know, like, uh, there's just a lot of things that would drive up turnout because like 90 million people sat out the 2016 presidential election. Um, and a lot of that was because of the candidates, but a lot of it is because Uh, There's just there's so many different ways that people are prevented or discouraged from voting in this country. And there's one thing we know about those 90 million people that didn't vote is that uh, is that they're less educated. They're less well off. um, They're people that we know statistically would would vote for the left in higher numbers than they would for the right. So to me, this is just like it's like a slam dunk. It's another month. One thing you come out with this expansive piece of legislation um, that, that fixes a lot of these problems. I think you saw the impact of this in Virginia. Um, when they re-enfranchised like 170,000 ex-felons and then magically Democrats blew out their polling projections. Um, so it's it's another thing that I'm like, I cannot believe that this wasn't addressed the last, time, the last time Democrats held unified power in D.C. But, you know, hopefully they'll have another opportunity. And I think it's really important um, because when turnout goes up, you know, the fortunes of the left go up too. Uh, I think it's pretty simple.
12: We've gone through now the strategies that you lay out for sort of keeping and maintaining power and making it possible to achieve the kind of uh, legislation in society that we'd all like to live in. However, in reading your book, like in, in going through this, there's this idea that like the Democrats have to take power, take back power to do any of this stuff. But I'm wondering, like in reading this book, I felt like it's sort of, obviously the Republican party is, what we're concerned about, because they control government. But in, in terms of actually implementing this strategy, I was struck that it seemed to me that the biggest impediment to that is the Democratic Party itself, as it is currently constituted on an institutional level. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that.
13: Um, you know, I mean, I agree and I disagree to a certain extent. I mean, I think that we've seen a lot of change inside the Democratic Party since 2008. Um, so like, you know, the Democratic Party that held the Senate in 2009 to, to 2013, in a lot of ways, it's gone. Um, there's some people that are still there, but I think that, um, you know, the, the sort of the policy center of the party has been moved left. And I think that uh, in a lot of ways, that's that's a lot of credit due to the to the Bernie Sanders movement and um, everybody that's kind of fighting to move the party to the left. But I think that there's you know, it, it's a, it takes a long time to transform a party from the inside. And so a lot of these older folks who are committed to a different way of doing things or a different economic model um, who came of age during the Clinton era, you know, they, they just have to be pushed out of power. They have to leave power. Um, they have to be successfully challenged in race after race. And um, that's that's going to take time. Um, mm. Progressive left is not winning every single battle that they engage in right now. Um, but I think that they are you know, really reinvigorated in a way that I've never seen in my life. Um, and I find that really heartening. So – you know, I guess my I guess what I would say is like the Democrat like right now, the Democratic Party is the is the national vehicle of progressive change in this country. Um, it is really far from perfect. Um, I think there's some people that need to go, <laughs> um, you know, starting with the 17 people that voted to get Don Frank. Um, there's, a lo- there's a lot of people, particularly in the Senate, who, who are wedded to, to old institutions and norms uh, that are dead and um, who just don't get it. Like, I, th- I think that they don't get it. Um, what people feel like everyday people feel are the problems in this country. Um, But I do think um, that we'd be better off under a democratic government than we would under a Republican and that we can simultaneously try to make that happen, um, hold people in the party accountable once they get into office. And if if they stray too far off the reservation, then we challenge them in primaries, uh, um, get much more aggressive about that, just like the Republicans have done. Um, You know, and I'm thinking about like the left's relationship to organized labor um you know they were they were promised card check uh, in 2008 uh, mm-hmm. and they never got mm-hmm. it and so that's the kind of you know that's the kind of policy stuff that um what, what the real trick there is maintaining engagement uh for, for the left beyond the election itself so when we get into you know if and when we get into power in 2021 we can't just be like all right cool like everything's solved because then you're gonna see
14: the parents are know, back
13: d- Democratic politicians just like, sort of like, they'll sniff the money in the wind and they'll just like walk off towards it if we don't hold them accountable, mm-hmm. if we don't get the right kind of people into office.
15: We're just talking about this debate between the Bernie Krat Democratic Party left and the corporate-aligned Clintonite Democratic Party establishment. There's also a debate of sorts between the Democratic Party Berniecrat left on the one hand and the wide spectrum of people on the socialist left on the other over how and whether to engage the Democratic Party. And WFP typically flexes its muscle to back-left candidates in Democratic primaries, and we do have a two-party system, unfortunately, so that makes sense to me on some level, but also maintains independence and sometimes runs people outside the Democratic Party line. What's your overall take on this debate and on what the right approach is?
16: You know, I think that the Democratic Party— is um the playing field more than it is you know it's a piece of infrastructure that can be mobilized by lots of different forces more than it is um any specific ideal ideology tied to it i think we do live in a a deeply broken um imperfect political system that doesn't well represent the variety of political views we have in america Um, but you know, given, given single member districts and the high cost of, you know, running for office and, um, you know, first past the post election rules, there are a lot of things we could do to make that better. But given the system we have, uh, you know, parties in in America are not really like parties in the rest of the world, in that they don't really have fixed or consistent ideologies. Um, But what they do have is ballot access. And in most cases, um, you know, we try to be uh, strategic, and we when we want to elect people who we think will carry our values in public office, um, most of the time in in most of the country, it's a lot easier to do that within the context of a democratic primary than as a you know sort of minor party candidate who might face some of those structural problems that I named before, um, like you know the first past the post system, which ultimately. Um, points heavily in the direction of, of, a, of a two-party system. When you have first-past-the-post, there's heavy incentives for people to you know, sort themselves into two big categories. Um, that said, um, when there are times that there isn't a candidate running in the Democratic field um, who suits our values – There certainly have been times where we've run outside of that uh, and and beat the Democrats um, head on running as a working families party candidacy. Um, I think the places where we've been able to do that um, are mostly places where we've built up um, the most reliable voting base and activist base over time by engaging in in elections strategically, by engaging in elections that people see uh, a meaningful path to change rather than you know, inviting people to participate in politics as symbolism. We think politics really affects people's lives and we don't tend to engage in it as, as symbolism only.
15: When WFP was founded in what year was that? 2003?
16: 1998 oh, initially.
15: 1998. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it, it's big idea was all about fusion voting. And that's not, that's no longer the case. Can you explain a little bit about
16: sure that's right so so yeah fusion voting in some states is known as cross endorsement um it is uh essentially just an election law that means that a minor party um can uh and a major party can endorse the same candidate so um the ultimate impact of that is you might go to vote in new york city Um, And when you go to vote, you'll see, you know, we were just talking about Mayor de Blasio. You'll see Mayor de Blasio appear on the Democratic line and again on the Working Families Party ballot line. And so we tell people when they vote on the Working Families Party ballot line, that's the way to send a message with your vote to say where you want that candidate to be on the issues that matter to you from, you know, from from affordable housing to, um, you know, to to uh, 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 policing to, you know, economic development, right? So so we ask voters in states like New York and Connecticut and Oregon to always look for the Working Families Party ballot line as the progressive stamp of approval right on your ballot. So that was the main kind of growth strategy, you know, that was the main, you know, electoral strategy of the Working Families Party for a big piece of our history. Um, and as we begin began to expand, we really, we looked at um, states where we thought, you um, that either had a rule like that or a similar one, or we thought we had a path to passing uh, a law like that one. So in Oregon, we started organizing in 2006 in Oregon with a plan to change the law and pass fusion voting, which we saw as at that time, you know, necessary to, to build the Working Families Party. I think it was really the success of the Tea Party on the right that showed us the, you know, the limitation of our thinking, which was that the Tea Party was this force that wasn't on the ballot at all, that wasn't using the fusion voting system, but still behaved like and saw itself as a political movement that was taking on the both Democrats, who they saw as too. Uh, you know, who they saw as an anathema and Republicans who they saw as too liberal for their tastes. And uh, we looked at our own record and realized, especially in places like New York City, the you know city council races that I mentioned to you, uh, a lot of our biggest victories had actually been in Democratic primaries um, that weren't really dependent on the reality of having a ballot line in the general election or not. So, you know, in New York City, which is an overwhelmingly democratic city, when Mayor de Blasio is reelected, the vote's on the working families party line, you know might be five or six or eight percent of the vote, but it's not going to make a huge determinative difference on whether or not he becomes a mayor in a city as strongly democratic as New York. So uh, we realized that we didn't have to be so limited in our thinking to growing only where we had this um, you know sort of quirky uh, election law. It's you know the fusion system is a great tool we think um, and it you know existed all across the country uh, a century ago um, it was often used for uh, allowing sort of urban industrial immigrant parties with rural populist farmer parties to work together on a common slate of candidates and ultimately you know the two party establishment and and the big banks. Uh, managed to ban fusion in most states because they thought it was too powerful a tool to allow different constituencies, like you know white workers and immigrant, you know native-born workers and immigrant workers, to uh, to to, to, it, to work together, or freed slaves in the Reconstruction South, um, uh, and you know rural white populists. Right? It was um, so it was a really powerful election law that was heavily used by the left until it was banned in most states. So that was the initial thinking. But we've since, you know, changed um, our strategies a lot and and realized that it's not a sort of critical prerequisite for for the WFP to grow. And it's really been in the last two years or so that we've started rapidly growing new WFP state chapters and local branches, you know, really all across the country.
15: How do you think that WFP's approach compares to that of DSAs, which is obviously very nascent, so it's hard to say what DSA's approach is because it's still being de- debated and developed. Do you see it as in contention with DSA's approach or more complementary? The approach I see being developed in DSA is is like WFP. It's an instrumentalist relationship to the Democratic Party, but maybe a little more instrumental in the sense of seeing the Democratic Party ballot line more crudely just as a ballot line and hostilely seizing it to run open socialists. How do you see the the two approaches?
16: Um, you know, that's a good question. I'm really eager to see the new energy that's in DSA. And I'm curious, you know, watching pretty closely to see how their um, political practice um, develops. I think we broadly agree, you know, I, I think I agree with the idea of the Democratic Party ballot line as a sort of piece of infrastructure uh, and a, uh, a, that that you can seize in you know sort of more or less hostile terms. Um, uh, and I guess I would just say I'm I'm eager to see how the DSA thinking um, develops. I think we are you know I mentioned up at the towards the top of the show that. We, um, you know, want to see we believe that uh, a, a plausible outcome to change is, you know, Democrats in the majority in legislatures and progressives in the majority in, um, in in those Democratic caucuses. We think that's a plausible path to being able to actually move progressive legislation to arrive at that strategy can occasionally mean um Backing less than ideal Democrats if it means the control of the body is in is in play. You know we think that the difference between um, uh, a Democratic controlled state Senate versus a Republican controlled state Senate is a big enough deal that uh, a, a mediocre Democrat might earn our support over a terrible Republican if it, if the control of the you know the body as a whole is in play and if we think we can make that. Uh, upgrade even if we don't you know ourselves uh, subscribe to every you know every belief by uh, a Democrat running in a swing district. I- I'm not sure that that's an approach that you know dsa would take um, uh, and I think that's uh, you know that's, that's it's good that there's you know a multiplicity of organizations doing doing different things, but um, my view would be if you if you look strategically at 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 power, um there are sometimes reasons to 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 back candidates. Other than you know, other than the candidates themselves,
15: I was just having a conversation with a friend about this last night. Which is, why should we not be incredibly depressed by how thin the national level left bench is? <laughs>
16: uh, I think the reason we shouldn't be depressed is because. Uh, for two reasons. One, because we have no choice but to continue to fight for what we believe in. Um, But two, we shouldn't be depressed because there is an undeniable new wave of activist energy of people who want to participate. So we may not have uh, as many, you know, leading light senators. We may not have as many Bernies and Elizabeth Warrens uh, as we wish we did. But we have an incredible number of people on the ground who are newly activated and more activated than ever um, who See a path to leadership in politics, uh, and and who have capacity for leadership, and, and that's what gives me a lot of hope.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with We the People with Nina Turner speaking with various progressive activists and leaders about taking back power. The Majority Report discussed the idea of blue states making voting mandatory. Represent.us extolled the virtues of ranked-choice voting, followed by the broadcast discussing the downfalls of ranked-choice voting, suggesting approval voting instead. A report from WNYC highlighted a new app. Outvote that aims to increase voter turnout through peer pressure. Chapo Trap House talked with David Ferris about how and why the Democrats should fight dirty, and finally we just heard the Dig speaking with Joe Dinkin about building progressive infrastructure within the Democratic Party. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips on building progressive power today. I'm going to share a couple of political strategy and philosophy conversations that I haven't had time to fit into the big show. Basically, discussing some of the changing winds of politics and the election strategies that need to change with them. To hear all of that. To cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
14: Hi, Jay. This is Matthew calling from the Central Valley of Northern California. Um, I just finished the episode where you called for some thoughts on whether or not being pro-choice should be a litmus test for being a Democrat, essentially. My hot take is this, and I'll preface it by saying that I come out of a far-right-wing, evangelical, conservative... Uh, religious family. Um, that was where I was raised um, in in, uh, in the Midwest. and um, and I was raised that being a Christian, quote unquote, meant that you oppose abortion and vote Republican and all those things. So that's what I come out of. I, I uh, proudly claim membership in uh, in the ex-evangelical, movement that uh, uh, Christopher Stroop and others on Twitter have started. I've been a pretty vocal uh, contributor to that community. Here's the thing about abortion and being pro-choice and being pro-life. And um, I think where it gets lost is in the language. I remember seeing some clips at the last Democratic convention where some right-wing pundits were going around talking about how, well, if you're pro-choice then uh, why do you support these measures like the one in, in New York City where they tried to limit the size of sodas? You know, if you're pro-choice, why don't you let people choose what size soda they want? And I've heard many people on the left say, well, you call yourself pro-life, but you're, you support the death penalty and you support, you know, endless war in the Middle East. And we get, we get bogged down because we're picking apart the language and not talking about what we really need to be talking about. And I'd like to state, first of all, though, well, not first of all anymore but i'd like to state that i believe that abortion is a civil right in this country i believe that it's guaranteed by the constitution and i will vehemently oppose anyone who says otherwise but let's understand that a lot of people don't like abortion i am one of them i don't like it i i don't i wish it didn't have to exist hillary clinton has been known to say that she wants abortion to be legal safe and rare and um and, and I think that's that's where a lot of us come down. It's not that we want to just run around aborting fetuses all the time, but the way you reduce the number of abortions is not by making abortion illegal, which is what the right wing and most people who consider themselves to be quote-unquote pro-life want to do. They want They want to make abortion illegal. And we know it's been proven that Free and easy access to contraception, comprehensive sex education, universal health care, lifting people out of poverty. These are all the things that will reduce the number of abortions, which quite honestly is what I would love to do. Making adoption easier, making it easier for same-sex and transgender people to adopt. These are all the things that we can do to make abortions less needed and less likely and I think for a lot of us, that's the goal. And I think we need to stop framing it in these terms of pro-life and pro-choice because people get bogged down in the words. Start at the outset. Say abortion is a fundamental right in this country. And if you don't like that and you'd like them to, there to be fewer of them because there's never going to be none, then you need to support these what are essentially left-wing progressive policies to care for people in their lives so that they can make good decisions. And if they find themselves pregnant, feel like they have options. So that's my hot take on it. I don't think that pro-choice versus pro-life ought to be a litmus test for anybody anywhere. I don't like the fact that people are single issue voters at all. And, um, Yeah, I I think we need to talk about what we really need to talk about, keeping abortion legal and safe. And if you don't like it, work to support policies that will reduce the number. And I think that's what we need to do. So thanks for taking my call. I know it's long and um, feel free to quote me if you want to. (laughs) Thanks. Stay awesome.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And on that note, as happy as I was to hear from Matthew from Northern Central California, he has been the only one so far— to call in and answer the question about whether choice should be considered a litmus test for Democrats. And let's just say that I, as a white dude, also (laughs) grew up in northern central California. Let's just say I don't want to have a conversation between myself and Matthew about the future of reproductive rights within the Democratic Party. So if if you're picking up what I'm laying down, uh, could could maybe some people who are actually capable of getting pregnant call in and give their opinion about choice as a litmus test within the Democratic Party. Uh if, rightly or wrongly, no matter how, how frustrated you may be about it, uh it, it is a debate happening within the Democratic Party and I thought it would be good and interesting to uh, host a conversation about that. And uh so let's see let's see if we can get some more voices in the mix on that. Now that said, I do have a response to Matthew. Uh, he he parroted the, the Clinton era uh, phrase of safe, legal, or legal, safe, and rare. But I, I've heard a, a pretty decent rebuttal to that in, in recent years that I just want to throw out there. A woman who I think was very justifiably frustrated at that phrasing uh, was recognizing that to say you want something like that to be rare implies and, and, you know, puts a moral judgment on it. And what she preferred and and what I agree with and prefer is safe, legal and used exactly as often as necessary, you know, because you don't have anyone saying that they want for heart valve replacement surgery to be safe, legal, and rare. Therefore, we need to encourage people to be healthy so that people need their heart valves replaced less often. Like, no no one puts that kind of phrasing on it, even as true as that might be, because to say you want something to be rare gives it that tinge of, like... This is bad and dirty and immoral. So let's let's try to have it happen as little as possible. I mean, you can't. You just can't get away from that framing on the issue of abortion. And so, rather than safe, legal, and rare, how about just safe and legal? Uh, safe, legal, and uh, granted as often as anyone needs for it to happen, without any moral judgment whatsoever. So that that would be my take on it. Now, now where Matthew is right in a sense is that. Obviously, many many people feel the way he does, and if if they personally are against it, I you know I don't particularly care. I guess as long as those feelings don't translate into any sort of policy that affects anyone else. But in terms of policy and and taking a stand and framing that stand in any particular way, I, I think it's good for for those who are able and willing to separate themselves from the concept of the need to reduce abortions and and, and phrase it as desiring for abortion to be rare, I, I think there is value in getting away from that framing. Okay, secondly, I just want to touch on an issue of progressive power, uh, the conversation we've been having uh, over the course of a few episodes on, um, you know, what can progressives do? I mean, obviously, that's what today's episode is about. What can progressives do sort of systemically uh, to get back power? And uh, so Forrest wrote in and made an excellent point, not only a great suggestion, but also asking, why does no one ever bring this up? It's such a good idea. Why is it never on the list? ...of things that progressives should be fighting for, and I absolutely agree with it, and I completely forgot to bring it up myself, and that's vote-by-mail. All of the suggestions that get made about making registration and voting easier, making registration automatic, making voting happen earlier, or with more polling places, or all of those things, like pretty much all of that can be set aside and replaced with vote-by-mail. It really is a system that is, uh like the people who live in vote-by-mail states won't shut up about how much they love their vote-by-mail systems. So if you need any <laughs> uh, encouragement on whether or not that works, just ask the people who live in those states and see if they think it works. And finally, in addition to the choice litmus test question, I have another question for you, so please call in on either of these topics. As we get down to the last two weeks of the campaign and and, getting right up to the election, I would love to hear what you personally have done to get involved, just because I think it will inspire others who maybe haven't gotten involved yet and, and make them understand they really could do something. So if you've gotten involved in the election in literally any way, uh, no matter how small or large your investment in time, money, or other... Uh, I, I would love to hear it. So, so call in with your thoughts on those topics. Again, the number to dial 202 999 3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com best of left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music, Used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left Podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from Bestofleft.com.